Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. Good evening and welcome to you all. My name is Maud Page and I'm the Acting Deputy Director of Curator and Collection Development here at the Queensland Art Gallery, Gallery of Modern Art. I'd like to firstly pass on my apologies for our director, Chris Saints, who was unable to come tonight, but if you stick around for the rest of this weekend's program, you will definitely get to meet him. So tonight, it's my particular honour to be standing here with Imelda Miller, who is not only the outstanding assistant curator Torres Strait Islander Pacific Indigenous Studies at the Queensland Museum, but also a long-standing colleague and friend. So together, we'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land upon which this event takes place. We would also like to especially acknowledge the presence here tonight of members of the Australian South Sea Islander community, including Interim National Body for Australian South Sea Islanders, the Port Jackson Branch, the Australian Indigenous South Sea Islander Association, the Tweed South Sea Islander Association, and it is wonderful to see that we're also joined by members of the Egmolesi family, apologies for my pronunciation, the Da family, the Sailor family, the Tambo, the Minicom, the Baikwa, the Nahal, the Davies, and the Togo, and the many other Australian South Sea Islander families. It's a real honour to have you here. Thank you for making the effort. We would also... We would also like to acknowledge the presence of Chief Colin Terrari, Mrs. Benita Mabo, Professor Clive Moore, Mrs. Shireen Malimu, Ms. Janet Prouse, Executive Director and State Archivist, Queensland State Archives, Niles Elvery, Queensland State Archives, and the Chancellor of Griffith University, Ms. Lillian Ford. This is the Quag Goma's fifth Perspectives Asia for 2013 and we're delighted to be working again with the Griffith Asia Institute at Griffith University to bring you this series of invigorating, informative and insightful seminars by leaders in diverse fields discussing society, culture and politics in the Asia-Pacific region. I'd like to thank Andrew O'Neill, Director of the Griffith Asia Institute and Natasha Verry for their close collaboration with the Gallery's Australian Centre of Asia-Pacific Art in developing and staging the Perspectives Asia program, which is now in its ninth year. It's a hugely important initiative for us, providing a context for our wide-ranging exhibition and cinema programs profiling Asian and Pacific art here at the gallery. I'd also like to thank tonight the Queensland Conservatorium, Queen Griffith University music students who provided the wonderful music in the lobby. So tonight is a very special Perspectives Asia, the second this year to engage with Australia's involvement with the Pacific, which is part, of course, of our Asia-Pacific region. We're extremely fortunate to have three very experienced speakers to engage with one of Australia's least known, yet most important histories, that of the Australian South Sea Islander community and the practice from 1863 to 1906 of recruiting, kidnapping Pacific Islanders to work on predominantly cotton and sugar farms in Queensland and northern New South Wales. 
Tonight's seminar launches a program of tours, performances, events, workshops and exhibitions across the cultural precinct titled Memories from a Forgotten People, 150 Years of Australian South Sea Islander Contributions to Queensland. Imelda would like to say a few words about this. Thank you, Maud. Um, welcome, everybody. Um, I'm very proud to stand here as uh, Australian South Sea Islander third generation. Um, and I'm very honoured that the Pacific Asia would take on the topic of Australian South Sea Islanders and blackbirding in tonight's seminar. Um, I think tonight leads us into interesting dialogue about this history and also it helps to mark memories of a forgotten people where we are marking the anniversary of 150 years of Australian South Sea Islander history in Queensland. I'm very honoured that the Queensland Art Gallery, Gallery of Modern Art, would take on this history and um, open up a dialogue which opens up our heritage and our culture to a wider audience. Um, this program runs until um, Sunday the 18th of August and I'm just so honoured that we are able to be here and be representing Australian South Sea Islanders um, at this important significant date, um, not only just for um, Queensland, but this is an important history for Australia. And I'm so glad that you're all here to be a part of this interesting dialogue. And I also wish the speakers um, a wonderful evening, and I can't wait to hear some of the interesting conversations that we'll have tonight. Um, I welcome you all to be a part of Memories of a Forgotten People and help us mark this anniversary for 150 years of South Sea Islander history here in Queensland. Thank you very much. So tonight it is with particular pleasure that Imelda and I introduce the Honourable Ralph Regenvanu MP among our panel of speakers here at the gallery. We're very fortunate to have worked with Ralph in his previous role as Director of the Vanuatu Cultural Centre and I would like to take this opportunity to thank him for his continued support of our engagement with the Pacific. The Honourable Regenvanu is now the Member for Port Villa and Minister for Lands, Geology and Mines in the Government of Vanuatu. A leader of the Groundmore Justice Party, Land and Justice Party, Ralph works with descendants of indentured workers in Vanuatu to build links with the Australian South Sea Islander community. Nick McClellan works as a journalist and researcher in the Pacific Islands. He has written widely about development, decolonisation and human rights as a correspondent for Island Business Magazine in Fiji and contributor to Tahiti Pacific Magazine, the Contemporary Pacific and other regional media. Our chair tonight is Sean Dorney, Pacific correspondent for the Australian Network. He's one of the ABC's most experienced and respected correspondents. He's an acknowledged authority on Papua New Guinea and the author of two books on PNG affairs. Sean returned to Australia in 1999 to take up the job of Pacific correspondent based in Brisbane. Please make them feel welcome. Thank you, Maud. Uh, thank you, Imelda. Um, it's terrific to see such a turnout. 
tonight. Uh, Nick and I were discussing this earlier and uh, although Nick does have um, his following of groupies, um, we both realised that the reason there's been such a good turnout is the presence here of Ralph Regan Vanu, the Minister for Lands in, in Vanuatu. I uh, did know Ralph's father, Sethi Regan Vanu, who was the Deputy Prime Minister of Vanuatu way back around the years of independence. Um, it was many years later I got to know Ralph and uh, I think he's the most honourable member of the Vanuatu Parliament since his father. <laughs> Uh, tonight's not going to be a lot about the history because uh, other events and uh, other displays um, around this month are covering that in some detail and tomorrow there's going to be a fairly long symposium that will deal, I think, with a lot of the experiences of uh, the South Sea Islanders who are now here in Papua New Guinea. I think we're going to concentrate a little bit more tonight on more contemporary issues um, but I would say that, uh, as some of you may know, um, my wife is uh, from Manus in Papua New Guinea. I was born in Townsville, um, a, a city named after Robert Towns, who was heavily involved in this blackbirding traffic. And uh, since Pauline is from Papua New Guinea, I'm indebted to Clive Moore for some of this detail, but um, I know there wasn't total kidnapping going on, but... Um, I'll just read from this. The most notorious cases of kidnapping come from the islands off East New Guinea in the 1880s. On one voyage, the hopeful crew had kidnapped a mission teacher and shot two islanders. On a second voyage, the hopeful kidnapped a number of islanders by dragging them into boats. The Royal Commission into the New Guinea phase of the labour trade observed that the cruise of the hopeful is one long record of deceit, cruel treachery, deliberate kidnapping and cold-blooded murder. The number of human beings whose lives were sacrificed during the recruiting can never be accurately known. End of quote. The case was tried in late 1884. Members of the crew were charged with murder and kidnapping. All were found guilty, the murderers receiving death sentences and the others given long sentences, the initial years to be spent in chains. But the Queensland public protested. 28,000 people signed a petition for clemency, including 60 members of the Queensland Parliament. The death sentences were commuted and all were discreetly released within five years. It's not a terribly proud history for Queensland. But as I said, we're not talking too much about the history tonight. I'll start by asking Nick to talk for a few minutes um, from his perspective of what goes on and then we'll ask Ralph to address us as well. Nick. Thanks, Sean, and thank you very much for the university, for the gallery and everyone for the invitation to be with you tonight. Uh, thinking about this important anniversary, um, it's a, a significant time. The context in 1863, uh, the middle of the American Civil War, where the Confederacy could no longer export cotton and sugar to the UK, um, and so men of capital, men of means in Australia saw the opportunity to expand new industries. And what that meant for not only Australia but for the region was a central part of this. 
And at the time, labour mobility and indeed the growth of contract labour, indentured labour and indeed slavery was part of the, the era. In 1862, slavers from Peru came and devastated many islands in the central Pacific, Kiribati, Tuvalu and others, uh, taking people to work in the mines in Peru. So what happened in Queensland was part of a broader pattern around the Pacific region. And I think that's a, a theme I want to echo tonight. As Sean has said, tomorrow and uh, indeed over the last few months, there's been many people drawing on the history of what this labour trade has meant for uh, Queenslanders, for people in Australia more broadly, certainly for the descendants of those people who came, kidnapped, recruited to work in Australia, uh, the Australian South Sea Islanders. But for me it's about looking, looking broadly, looking um, at us in relationship to the region. And while the next few days we'll be talking, uh, debating, uh, viewing uh, images, ideas about the impact of the labour trade on Queensland, it's Queensland's industry, economy, the role that Melanesian workers play to build key industries in this uh, state, I think um, we can sometimes underplay what it means for neighbouring island nations. And one of the things I'd like to flag tonight in the short time just to launch off is to think about what impact did the loss of thousands of young men, mainly men, a few women, have on the village economy of neighbouring countries, neighbouring islands. Um, there were over 800 voyages to about 80 islands around the region. So what did this colonial labour trade mean for the family structure, the social, religious, cultural institutions of the Melanesian world? And what resonances does that play out uh, later today? And I think you'll hear more from Ralph about this topic. And as someone who is lucky enough to have the opportunity to travel around the Pacific, this is an issue that comes up a lot. Um, uh, a couple of months ago I was in New Caledonia, uh, in Lifu, reporting on the Melanesian Spearhead Group Summit. That's the regional organisation that links together uh, four independent Melanesian countries, Papua New Guinea, Solomons, Vanuatu, Fiji, the independence movement in New Caledonia, and met some of the local politicians who were working with families in Lifu who'd had people blackbirded to Australia. And they were very interested to hear that Australians were organising around this issue. I used to live in Fiji and very good friends with uh, people from the, the Fiji Melanesian community, people who were backbirded in that direction towards Fiji. So this is an issue that resonates around the region. And uh, while we speak, uh, look over the next few days about what it means for Queensland, for Australia, I think we need to look at our horizons around us. It's a shared history between our nation and the Pacific Island nations that surround us. And we often underestimate the ties that bind us to Oceania. The late Tongan writer Apelli Haofa, uh, sadly passed away, wrote a wonderful essay called Our Sea of Islands um, many years ago. And he viewed the islands not as small isolated specks uh, in this vast ocean, but indeed saw the ocean as uniting people, as linking people, um, bringing people together, the liquid continent that united the diverse range of peoples across the region. 
Uh, there's a range of pre-colonial ties across the islands, cultural, economic, environment, that link people across Melanesia. Um, and those still exist today and are under-acknowledged. And uh, paradoxically, the labour trade continued, uh, contributed to bring things that also united peoples across the Pacific. Christianity <laughs> as one, firearms as another, um, the Bishlama pidgin languages that uh, provide a means of communication, Tokpizin in PNG, Bishlama in Vanuatu, these trade languages gave an opportunity for people to transcend their boundaries and link to one another. So those sort of connections are something that I think this 150th anniversary provides us an opportunity to look at. And this brings me to my final comment. We need to look beyond simply this as history. We need to look at the contemporary resonances of what the labour trade meant. Um, I don't want to underplay the unique elements of blackbirding, um, the history of kidnapping and coercion, the terrible conditions facing workers in the sugar fields and plantations, most importantly at the risk of being accused of black armband history, the shameful and horrific period of deportations where uh, um, after Federation in 1901 and the Pacific Islanders Labourers Act of 1901, the process of deporting a whole ethnic community from Australia um, in the years leading up to the First World War, particularly 1906 and 7, 8. Um, those moments are, are very important and uh, I think we'll hear testimony from the Australian South Sea Islander community. Many people are in the room today over the next few days about these issues. But um, I think there's an opportunity for us to also look at the contemporary resonances. I've been doing a lot of work on the seasonal worker programs. Um, many people in neighbouring countries look to Australia to help with development, social, economic, cultural ties today. There's a demand that Australia open up its uh, labour market to uh, workers uh, from neighbouring countries. Um, we're talking not just about the skilled workers that Australia is happy to take. Um, teachers, IT workers, accountants, rugby players here in Queensland. Um, we're talking about people whose skill is farming and fishing, people who want the opportunity to uh, earn the money to improve their life. So I think there are, are resonances today about our relations with the region. So it's a real pleasure to be with you to commemorate 150 years of uh, uh, the arrival of Don Juan, more importantly 150 years celebrating the resilience, uh, the survival, uh, the proud heritage of the Australian South Sea Islander community, but more importantly to think about what it means for our relations with our neighbours. Thank you Nick. I think we'll... I think we'll explore this whole issue of labour mobility um, in the current context a little bit later, but I would invite Ralph Vanu to uh, make his opening remarks. Oh, thank you, and thank you to the people who got us here. Um, yes, I, I want to talk, I want to continue with what um, Nick has been talking about, to talk about uh, black pudding as an international issue from the perspective of Vanuatu. Um, you know, we're, we're commemorating this event for Queensland, but of course it's, it's a very important part of our history too. And there are a lot of um, contemporary opportunities that come out of this history that uh, in Vanuatu we are trying to connect with. So um, I'm, uh, as you heard, a, f a member of parliament for Port Vila, which is the main city of Vila, uh, Vanuatu, for five years now. But I used to be director of the National Museum for a number of years. 
so I came into contact with a lot of this history through the work we were doing there. And I think when we all, in this curriculum in Vanuatu, there's, there's, a, there's a bit about this whole history, and that's in the, in the national curriculum, so you learn it when, you, when you're growing up. We also know that um, our national language, Bislama, was actually developed in Queensland and brought back. So this is the national language in the constitution, Pidgin, Pidgin English. And actually last year when we went to Bundaberg, we got to see the place. The um, people there showed us the actual site where they started developing this language. It was a place where people used to meet and try and talk to each other. And through, through trying to talk to each other, they developed this language, which, which then came back. And now it's the language you use in Parliament. You know, it's the official language of the country of parliamentary business and so on. I remember we used to wonder where Nomakas came from. You know, Magas uh, means it's really good, and it came from the Magas. From the and this is something we found out afterwards. It showed that uh, that tie back to Queensland. And one of the other important legacies of uh, blackbirding for Vanuatu, of course, was the people who came, came to Queensland became missionized and came back and missionized their own communities. So we have the Church of Christ, for example, that came out of Queensland. Now it's a major church in Vanuatu. And um, many of the strongest sort of legacies that people talk about is the fact of individuals who came back and missionized their people and they remember them. And there's memorial churches and so on in their names for people in Vanuatu who came back and did that. But while I was working in the Cultural Center in the mid-1990s, there was um, a recognition in Queensland. And then there was funding from the Queensland government for airfares for descendants to come back to Vanuatu. So that was a very small period where there was actually money put into establishing these reconnections. And people had been coming back, of course, for ever since start of the, you know, 1900 and from 1905 on, people have been coming back to Vanuatu, going, some have come and stayed, those links have been there, but it was during this period in the mid-1990s when the funding came from the Queensland government that a lot of people started to come, and they used to come into the museum and ask us, you know, can you help us, we, this is, this is the information we know, what can you tell us about where we can possibly go to find out more about where we come from? And so that was very instructive for me too, to meet all these people coming through. And uh, many of them we were able to connect up with uh, you know, their, their family back in Vanuatu. Around that time too, the late 1990s, 2000, was when the Maritime Museum in Sydney did an exhibition on the labour trade. And this was a travelling exhibition that went around the Melanesian region, went to Papua New Guinea, went to Solomons, came to Vanuatu. And with that, uh, we started to ask people to come forward with the stories and what we found was that there are many, many, many stories. But uh, someone said they, they sleep unless you go and wake them up, but they're there. And there's lots of histories that uh, once you ask, you start to see them coming out. So this was all the kind of um, context of blackbirding as a history for Vanuatu. And going around Vanuatu, there's always places, all these sites you come across. You know, this is a place where this person was taken and they'd name the people. So that's existing around the place. But in 2005, this is a, a key moment in the evolution of this blackbirding issue in Vanuatu because this is where, when it started being politicized. 
what happened was the current Prime Minister of Vanuatu, Mwanakalosil um, Kakasis, sponsored a blackbirding forum and we saw the chiefs Nakamal in Port Vila and he actually paid the money for people to come and people came from Queensland over and this was the first time they sat and they talked about it and the motivation for this for the people who were interested in it was in fact uh, the opportunity for seasonal employment in Australia so the opportunity for seasonal employment in Australia generated this interest in this history and bringing it back as a way of I think uh, making some connection to this labour uh, mobility or um, people from Vanuatu working in Australia that had been going on for a long time. So in the attempt to lobby Australia to allow New Vanuatu to come in to do seasonal employment, because by this time the New Zealand one had started, the New Zealand Regional Seasonal Employment Scheme which was taking thousands of Pacific Islanders, Australia still not yet. So there was this trying to see how can we open the Australian um, labour market to Pacific Islanders. And so people went back in history to take this history and bring it out to the front again. And say, look, this is what happened. So that's what I talk about when I say the politicisation of the issue was to do with seasonal employment. So after this convention, what happened in 2008, uh, the election where I won my seat, also uh, David Abel won his seat in Villa as well. And this, uh, this was an MP from the Shepherds Alliance Party. And these were the people who'd been pushing this issue. And uh, he was also using seasonal employment as a way of getting votes, saying we're going to open up the market for people to come over. So. He got elected. Uh, his group is the one behind Australia Vanuatu Connections, which has been making connections with people here in Kabulcha, mainly, and up further up north co the north coast. We formed, when I got into parliament, he got into parliament, we formed a block with the current Prime Minister. And this was one of the issues we were talking about as well. The link with blackbirding and seasonal employment. The connection with a lot of people here, the uh, Port Jackson people, um, happened in 2011 when I, w I was a minister at that time, I was Minister of Justice, and Radio Australia rang me up to do an interview, and it was talking about seasonal employment, and then I made a comment which um, we basically talked about why, you know, we, I, I expressed the view that a lot of people in Vanuatu see backpackers coming from Europe, working, picking up apples, whatever, and we want to come over and do the same work, and you can't do it. And then I expressed the view that this was, uh, from the point of view of many in Vanuatu, there could be no explanation for why we're not allowed to do it, and they're allowed to do it, and the only explanation is racism. So I said that, and that got taken up in a huge way. <laughs> A minister from Vanuatu talking about racist Australian government policies. He was taken to Parliament here, it was question time. And as a result of this, the Australian South Sea Islander Port Jackson group issued a statement supporting what I said. And as a result of that, I got in contact with them. And at the same time, there was a meeting being organised in Brisbane, 2011. So we all went up there. We went across, uh, me and uh, David Abel, MP David Abel, and some others from Vanuatu. And 
what we stressed to at that at that meeting in Brisbane was that you know back in the 1990s there was the Australian South Sea Islander United Council. There was a national body, and through that national body, Queensland had recognised a special status for South Sea Islanders, and they'd got this period where there was funding for people to come back. But somehow that had, the momentum of that organisation had not continued, and so now we're in a situation where we were back to regional associations all up, all up the coast, but if Vanuatu as a country was going to engage with the issue, we needed one voice. We needed one voice to be able to talk to us and we could talk to the Australian government about that issue and the Solomon Islands government. So at that meeting we decided that we needed to form this national body and that was when the, um, we decided to call a meeting last year which would be the first national conference to look at doing this. At that same time, 2011, uh, us in Vanuatu realised that there were a number of different organisations working on the issue, including Australia Vanuatu Connections, this MP David Abel, other people. There was a risk it could be, um, it, it was politicised in a way that wasn't necessarily beneficial in the long term. So the National Council of Chiefs, the Malvatumari, decided to establish a body called the Vanuatu Indigenous Descendants Association, which would be the chief's mouthpiece to talk on the issue of blackbirding. So that became the national body to talk about the issue on behalf of the government and behalf of the chiefs. In that same year, a number of the political parties in Vanuatu, uh, including you know, the Union of Moderate Parties, one of the major parties, the Green Party, the uh, Namangi Aote, Gramo Justice, signed a declaration saying we supported what we call custom citizenship for all the South Sea Islanders who'd been brought to Australia on the basis that they had their Nasara, their Nakamal, their ceremonial grounds, they had their families. They were citizens by the fact of being Indigenous despite having Australian passports. So this was a move to say we want these people to be able to have the same rights as we have, custom citizenship. So this declaration is now in play by uh, these political parties. 2012, we had the One Talk conference up in um, Thunderburg, and uh, we all went there and formed the interim body, which is now working towards the November meeting, where the election of the first national representative body is going to happen. Um, 28th of July last month, uh, Vanuatu celebrated, commemorated the 150th anniversary. Many people who were here came over, about 100 South Zealanders came over to Vanuatu, to Villa, and then went on to other places. And that was, it, it was at that time that the Prime Minister stood on the stage and said, there should be an apology. So there's a lot of talk in the media about the Vanuatu Prime Minister calling on the Australian Government to issue an apology. There has been no official approach made, there's just been this statement made on at that day that there should be an apology. So we are wondering what the Solomon Islands Prime Minister is going to say in Bundaberg on Sunday. Because he's going up there for that and he's going to make a speech too. Because these are, these are the two main countries that were involved, Solomon Islands and Vanuatu. And there's a, there's a three-way, uh, there's, three, there's basically three states that we are considering need to move on this issue. And that's why it's so important to have this national body so that we go with the South Zealand communities in Australia alongside as, as the fourth party in these talks. So it's an international issue. It's also a development issue. You know, Vanuatu, least developed country, Solomon Islands, 
you know about those issues. Australia, first world of course. Opportunities for seasonal employment. In the context of blackbirding, maybe there is an historical justification. Maybe there are reasons. Um, and I... Last week in Vanuatu, the PESA Plus Pacific Closer Economic Cooperation, Closer Economic Relations talks. This is the new trade agreement that Australia, New Zealand, want all the Pacific Island countries to join. A big sort of free market, or whatever you call it, for the Pacific Islands. So for the Pacific Islands, we have pretty much everything to lose, very little to gain from this close economic uh, relations because, you know, all the manufacturing comes out of New Zealand and Australia. And so right now, the big issue in PESA is if you want the Pacific Island countries to join, you have to open the labour market. And that was said last week as well. They said, that's where we have to go now before we can move any further on this. A lot of resistance from Australia to that. Uh, and I just want to close with um, a quote that uh, Professor Stuart Firth made at the inaugural State of the Pacific Conference at the ANU two months ago. So he's a, one of the foremost uh, Pacific Island scholars. He made a talk and, uh, you know, Ozaid was there and government people and he closed by saying that the best single thing Australia could do for the Pacific is open up its labour market. So here we are in 2013 talking about this and we're celebrating 150 years since the first people were taken to come and work. So it seems like we're back with another opportunity and we'd like to see it as that, this 150th anniversary, as an opportunity to move this issue forward. And uh, we're very happy that uh, this 150th anniversary has allowed for relations to be built again. And the people coming over to Vanuatu last month, um, all of this stuff that's happening now, people coming over, and we look forward very much to the November meeting, where a big delegation will come from Vanuatu and Solomon's as again, and we'll try and elect this national body so that we can then start working with the South Islanders from, from uh, an organised, in terms of political strategy and organised perspective. Thank you. On, on one of my trips to Vanuatu, uh, after having spoken to Ralph about this issue of, of uh, all the imports that come in and, and so little is exported out, he told me about all the containers that just line the street away from the Port Vila port. So I went and filmed this endless um, series of, of empty containers that had brought stuff in but had nothing to take back to, uh, to Australia. I'm not suggesting that we put labourers inside these containers. <laughs> but the whole labour issue is, I think, a really serious one for Australia. Um, it is a question out there in Melanesia as to exactly as Ralph said, why are all these European backpackers allowed to get all these jobs when Melanesians find it so almost impossible to get into Australia? Uh, I've, uh, one of the stories I'd really like to do is up Gatton Way, I'm told, and this has come to me via a Solomon Islander who, who um, has been involved in this, um, that there are all sorts of illegal immigrants from the Melanesia now working um, in agricultural areas in the Gatton area being paid very, very poorly, but one of them being a former high school headmaster in 
Solomons, um, who gets more, even though it's not proper pay, gets more there than he does as a high school headmaster back in the Solomons. So I think this whole labour issue is an extremely important one. Nick, would you have anything further to add? Yeah, I think it's... It's part of our history, part of our contemporary life, that people are on the move. Um, often the tourism industry presents this image of Pacific Islanders lying under the palm trees and so on, but from colonial days to today, people have sought uh, employment in the wage sector to provide for improving livelihoods, fixing the house, school fees and a whole range of things. And there's great movements around the contemporary Pacific, people moving from rural areas to the urban centres or to enclave developments around mine sites, around plantations, around tax-free zones and so on. There's movements from island to island where um, people have moved from some of the smaller uh, islands that don't have a lot of opportunities for employment in the wage sector to places where there's work. So, for example, in the French Pacific, um, people have moved from the French territory of Wallace and Futuna to neighbouring New Caledonia, one of Australia's closest neighbours. Um, New Caledonia's got 25% of the world's nickel. It's a major mining industry. So in today there are more Walesians in New Caledonia than there are in Wallace and Futuna um, because of the employment opportunities that are provided. And another, the third great movement is people are moving to the countries of the Pacific Rim, um, both from push and pull factors. So uh, um, people uh, are seeking employment. And so uh, often along colonial lines, people from the northern Micronesian islands move to Hawaii and Guam. People from Polynesia, Tonga, Samoa, Cook Islands head for New Zealand. Fijians have gone to countries all around the Pacific Rim, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, and so on. So this is a, a key feature of life that people are seeking education, employment, enjoyment um, through labour mobility um, and that's where, as Ralph said, they're knocking on the door of Australia not just for skilled workers to have opportunities for migration but also for people who want temporary work opportunities, the chance to earn enough money to send back remittances, maybe to set up a small business, to provide the school fees that are needed nowadays for education and opportunities. And you find Pacific workers all over the world. I interviewed some Tuvalu and seafarers who'd been captured by Somali pirates off the coast of Africa. Um, they'd been on the European shipping lines. Uh, Fijian uh, um, soldiers who resigned their commission to go off and become uh, working with private military contractors in Iraq during the war. Um, you know, many communities, uh, although the vast majority of Melanesians still live in village settings, still grow their own food, increasingly people are looking for opportunities in the, the wage sector. Um, and if they can't find it at home, they're looking to their neighbourhood. And that's where obviously Australia and New Zealand as the biggest powers in the region provide that opportunity. But um, for us the big game is Asia. Um, even though we are the key aid, trade, military power in the Pacific, our whole national discourse is focused on the big game, China, India, the emerging Asian economies, rather than on our closest neighbours. It's surprising how many Papua New Guinean pilots are now flying in the Middle East for major airlines there. Uh, Ralph, what's the feeling in Vanuatu that the New Zealand scheme in labour mobility seems to be working so well and the Australian one just seems to have not really got off the ground? <laughs> yeah, well, that's, that's it. I mean... There's a lot of people, I mean, the, the seasonal employment is such a good thing because uh, it, it doesn't take you out of 
that traditional economy if you don't want to get out of it. You can go for six months, get all the money you need for the next couple of years, come back, and it doesn't... Uh, it's unlike going and working in construction in villa where you get paid nothing and you, you're a wage slave all year. You can go and get the same amount of money that you get one, one year in a few months and come back and... So it's a very good opportunity for uh, people in the village to make, make the money they need. So on that basis, uh, we see that Australia, you know, Australia's always been the more dominant trade and economic partner than New Zealand for Vanuatu. Yet New Zealand seems to be opening up, uh, taking in thousands of new Vanuatu. And in Australia, I think we've, we haven't got to 100 yet. I got the figures. Oh, yeah. I rang up the Department of Employment and they said how many people have come in the last year, the seasonal worker program. The full scheme was established on the 1st of July last year and there's been 1,473 people from around the Pacific come in the first year of Australia's seasonal worker program, the full program. 176 from Vanuatu, 42 from the Solomons, 28 from Papua New Guinea and 10 from Nauru. If you think of how many people we're sending to PNG and Nauru at the moment, <laughs> um, uh, and yet New Zealand has a cap of 8,000 people a year for their recognised seasonal employer scheme. So I think the New Zealanders look more to the Pacific for the obvious historic reasons. The Maori population have deep connections to the rest of Polynesia. There's a very strong presence of Tongans, Samoans, New Orleans, Cook Islanders in New Zealand. So I think they look a bit more to the region than we do. But um, we're here this week to commemorate the, the connection that Australia does have with the island going back to colonial days and I think sometimes that's not part of our national discourse, certainly not part of the election campaign that we're in the middle of at the moment. Ralph, you were talking earlier about uh, the need for, I think, cohesion in the groups here in, in the, amongst the South Sea Island community. Could, could you elaborate on that? Yes, I mean, we... There are issues we want to talk about, like like the issue of um, Vanuatu, like PNG has, you know, a single pa passport. You can't get, you can't have dual citizenship. We are talking now of dual citizenship, but because it's such a contentious issue, we are wanting to do it first for people with Vanuatu blood. So it means all the Australian South Sea Islanders who have Australian passports can also get, and this is this custom citizenship we were talking about. So for that, we need, we want to talk about that with Australia and with the South Island community. Other issues like seasonal employment, we see this as a great opportunity to rekindle the cultural relationships because I think uh, South Island community would love to receive people and we've talked about this and make those links and this is going to be an opportunity for uh, cultural exchange, learning for both sides and rekindling those family relationships, getting people coming over to their own families, them coming back. If Anwar was to us to provide passports, I mean citizenship, you know, to make that easier for those connections to happen. And um, for all those issues, the Vanuatu government is, is taking, I mean, I'm, I'm a minister, right? So we're talking about it at that level. Australia, we'll be able to talk about that level, but we need the South Islanders, obviously, need to say what they need to be a partner in that conversation. And they can't be if there's, I mean, who do we talk to? The Bundaberg mob or the Mackay mob? Or we need one buddy to talk to to make it strategic to, 
move forward. So we're very much hoping that this can happen in November. I think we've got about 10, 12, 15 minutes left. Could I throw it open to anyone who would like to ask a question? that a lot of the Pacific Islanders um, helped that vote to get Australia under the Security Council. Ralph, would you have anything to say? Yeah, we voted for Australia. <laughs> mm. I think... I, th yeah, I think people underestimate how much Pacific Islanders know about Australia and how relatively little we know about the contemporary Pacific. Um, you know, I think that that's one of the big challenges. I say this as a card-carrying member of the Journalists' Union. Uh, there's a real challenge for our media to take the Pacific seriously, um, whereas people in Vanuatu, Solomons and other countries listen to Radio Australia. They follow the Australian news um, and they know about the sort of debates that are happening here. Um, and yet, by and large, the Australian public uh, doesn't have a, a well-rounded view of the Pacific. We have paradise or paradise lost. Paradise is the tourist imagery that, that dominates. Paradise lost is coups, crisis, corruption. Um, and there's very little about the daily life of Pacific Islanders, the way in which Pacific Islanders are responding to challenges that um, face us all. I mean, global warming is the ultimate global challenge and Australians are affected, Queenslanders are affected just as much as people in the Pacific. So it's often about how we in the region respond together to these global challenges and I sometimes think that we, we miss that. So I'm struck your point about um, this the Stolen Generations Apology in 2008 resonated right around the region. The apology to Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people. Um, many friends I talked to in the Pacific saw it as a very important moment. And often Australians forget we were a colonial power in the Pacific, in Papua New Guinea, the administering power in Nauru. And so the way in which white Australia treated Aboriginal Australia resonates very strongly with our neighbours. And I think the issue at the moment of the South Sea Islanders coming to claim their heritage. It's been going on for a long time, since the mid-70s with the Australian South Sea Islander United Council, the current work to build a national body, uh, the testimony that we'll hear over the coming days of people speaking about their identity, their pride in their identity, um, is an important part. But that, that's something that's not part of the mainstream discourse. And I, I congratulate the people at the gallery, the museum, to try and bring this forward into the national debate in Australia, because it's certainly resonating around the region. One of the things that disturbs me a little is that um, my job is to try and cover the Pacific Islands. 
but about 90 to 95% of what I do never gets seen by anyone in Australia. It just goes out on our international services, Australia Network and Radio Australia. Could I throw it open to anyone else who might like to ask a question? It's mostly um, large uh, ranches owned by there's uh, some local families um, and some French, but the abattoirs are a locally owned company. Thank you, because there's preferential um, treatment of Vanuatu beef in Australia. Right. It's terrific beef. I, I think it's talking about the seasonal labour people on six-month contracts. Yeah, I mean, we always hear about the issues. Um, I think uh, there's a general feeling that um, the benefits of the seasonal employment scheme in New Zealand, at least, outweigh these costs that we're seeing, uh, relationships and stuff. Um, and it's seen as a, in terms of if you want to make if you want to make money, it's a more benign option than having to go to Vila and work, which you, get, you work you know for much much less, the same kind of work. So if you're going to engage in the wage economy, it's one way that um, you can do it uh, and maximise the time you're away. And you also have to remember that. Um, Know, especially young younger men moving out of the out of the community to go and go somewhere else is something that's been going on for a long time. I mean, traditionally, as I understand it, the uh, Vanuatu scheme is pretty very very well regulated, and um, they actually approach the chiefs to decide who should go and who shouldn't go that um, they try and make sure that the people who are sent, that there's not going to be any trouble. Um, is that a correct interpretation? Most of them. Some are not, some are more, but, but they're finding out, they're trying to move them more towards communities going with their leaders and, uh, and an existing community in Vanuatu going rather than taking people from all over the place and putting them together because that's when you get more problems. And that's certainly what happened 150 years ago. They picked up from everywhere and the, one of the issues too about Bishlamer and PNG Pigeon is that they are much more similar than Solomon Islands Pigeon because I think after everyone went back home 
the British tried to dampen it down in the Solomon so Solomon Islands pigeon is much more anglicised than either Bishlamer or PNG pigeon. I think it's a good point though that, that a lot of the World Bank reports about labour mobility focus on the economics and they're pretty clear that the remittance flows are very positive and they're growing around the world. Remittances are three times the amount of overseas aid that's provided from OECD countries to the developing world and that rate's growing. But there are social impacts too, there are cultural impacts. Um, there's issues about HIV, there's issues, what I call the three M's, mobile men with money. <laughs> um, what does it mean where people are, are getting cash and uh, what are they spending it on? How's that done and I think there are some very positive examples where communities have been tithing people so that money might go into a microcredit scheme that could be benefit the community when they come back so it's not an individual thing but it's through families or through communities that this is being done but it poses real questions of regulation so I say we're back to the 1880s and the Pacific Polynesian Labourers Act the Pacific Island Labourers Act are these schemes how do you regulate them? How do you ensure that people are not exploited? And I think that's a core issue as we look at labour mobility increasingly around the world um, because there's an imbalance of power um, between the employer and the worker. Temporary workers are not citizens of this country. They don't have the rights of citizens. And for Aboriginal people, for others, that should resonate. Um, the rights of people as citizens uh, to determine the conditions under which they work, to have a say in which party will govern us, is a pretty important element. So while there's this, this demand for opening up the labour market economy, I think it's also a challenge for us as Australians to think about the conditions that people are placed in. And this, this resonates um, about sending people out too. I, as I was preparing for our discussion tonight, every morning I turn on the radio and I hear politicians say, oh, we'll just resettle thousands of people in Nauru or you know, we'll send people here and there. And it, it misses out the subtext. What happened to the country that they came from? What happens to the future of those people as individuals, to the host communities? And I think what I hope this week will be is a springboard for us as Australians to think about um, this movement of people and it is people we're talking about across the region. What does it mean not only for us as a nation, but for our neighbouring countries? We're a rich country in a developing world. Um, our neighbours are small island states. They always will be. <laughs> they ain't going anywhere and nor are we. So I think we have to promote this dialogue and think about the discussion, be it asylum seekers, seasonal workers, uh, uh, relations with the neighbourhood. Unfortunately, uh, the Pacific Islands Forum, the next opportunity to have that conversation is three days before the election. So I don't think Australians will be saying very much this year in Majuro. Do you think colour plays a part? Absolutely. Clive, please. Thank you, Sean. I had the privilege this year to uh, go with uh, South Sea Island delegations, one to Bob Carr's office and also to one of his leading bureaucrats in uh, Canberra. And I think I'll be back up by the people that I was with to say that we were extremely disappointed with Bob Carr and his lack of knowledge and understanding for Australian South Sea Islands. Uh, he never heard of deportation, which was rather shocking. Uh, and he issued them out of his office within 15 minutes, rather embarrassed, I think, that they got in there to start with. And then we went to Canberra and we saw one of the city bureaucrats who'd been part of the Pacific Forum. And I actually mentioned that there was every reason to believe that these issues to do with the 
Unfortunately, look, I'm um, afraid that we're going to have to. We could talk all night, um, but there is another function that's uh, about to happen. So, thank you all very much for coming, and uh, I think it's been pretty valuable. So, could you please thank? For more Griffith University podcasts, go to www.griffith.edu.au/podcasts.